All right, so listen, this is, um, this is a thing that I, I truly believe this, that our culture is too youth-obsessed, um, that we turn to youth for everything, that we, we emulate youth and we want to be like youth and we're always concerned, well, what do the youth think? And chances are they think something pretty stupid because that's, I mean, I remember my youth and I was really stupid. I'm not, I wasn't nearly as smart and, and everything as I am today. But I, even though I am convicted by that, that we turn too often for wisdom to our children, um, there are times that children are wise. There was this website, as I was researching this message on the wise men, uh, The Mother List is the name of the website, the mother of all resources. The article was Words of Wisdom from Kids. And they had, uh, this is what it said, we asked 12 kids aged 4 to 14, 4 to 14, what is the most important thing they have learned so far growing up? Um, they had like 25 of them. I leveled it down to seven. I'm curious what this congregation would say is the best piece of wisdom. Patrick, who is 10, when your dad is mad and he asks you, do I look stupid to you? Don't answer him. Okay? It's good. Michael 14 comes in with never tell your mom that her diet isn't working. Um, between the two, which one is worse? The second? All right, all right. Uh, Sophie, 11, this is kind of nice. All you need, I assume in life, all you need is a best friend who has chocolate. Um, Emily, number 10, a little bit wiser. Don't ever pull dad's finger when he tells you to. Um, Talia, who is 11, when mom is mad at dad, don't let her brush your hair. And Alicia, who's 13, when you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom when she's on the phone. And then... I assume because she won't get mad at you. I, I don't know. But, um, my personal favorite is the last one. Eddie comes in strong at number eight, uh, at eight years old. But so far, would we say the mom and the diet thing is probably number one, best piece of advice? Here was Eddie. See if this doesn't beat it. Uh, never try to baptize your cat. <laughs> I think that's pretty wise on Eddie's part. All right, so when we think of wisdom in the culture, um, maybe we turn to our, our young people. When you think of wisdom in Scripture, there's really two groups or two things that come to mind, at least for me, and that is Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, Solomon and his Proverbs. And then when you're thinking wise and you're thinking the Bible, you're probably thinking the wise men that come to worship Jesus. That's typically what we think of when we're thinking of wisdom. I brought these guys up last week, the wise men, the magi from the east, when I was talking to you about how they triggered Herod and we got into the whole discussion of Herod. But I want to spend a little more time with them this week. I know in the, in the bulletin I, I gave Debbie the wrong info. It's not Matthew 12. He is Lord of the Sabbath, but that's not it. It's Matthew chapter 2. And I know I read some of this last week, but I want to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. So if you got your Bible, flip there. Matthew 2, you're familiar with this, verses 1 through 12. All right, here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, that's the, the, the portion of the Roman world that is uh, primarily Jews, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he's called together the Sanhedrin here. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. I love that. The king of the Jews is so unfamiliar with Jewish scripture, he's got to ask these other people, all right, you guys have talked about this before. Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. This is the prophet Micah. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel, the great shepherd. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, okay, so we're not in the manger now. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, so here's the question. Who are these guys? Like, we always say the three wise men, but we don't know that there were three. We assume there were three because there were three gifts. But if you read the way that it's written, it easily could be ten dudes. It easily could be two guys. It could be 15 guys. And when they get there, they have pooled their resources, and they have these magnificent gifts, and together they present them to the, to the Christ child. We don't know how many there are. In fact, we don't know a lot about them. So let's address what it is that we know, because what we do know, I think, is pretty profound and pretty impressive. Number one, the first thing we know, they are not Jews. Okay, they are from a foreign kingdom in the east. A lot of people would guess, because of the travel time it would take to walk, they would guess Persia. They might have been from further east, but the further east you go, the more difficult it would be for them to get there under two years. But we know that they are from the east. We know that they don't fully know scripture. They know that there's some kind of prophecy and they see the star and they're coming. But notice that they had to ask, where is this child supposed to be born? So they don't know that Micah had foretold that the Christ child, the Messiah, was going to be born in Bethlehem. They did know, however, that Herod, whose name is spread throughout the world, they did know that Herod had built this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. And so when they're heading in that direction, that's where they're going to go to ask, where should we go? So we know that. We know that they're not Jews. That's where they go first. Secondly, we know that these guys have a level of sophistication. You know sophisticated people in our culture, in our society. Maybe not a lot of them around Greentown that would be looked at as the, sophistica the sophisticates, the really impressive minds and all of that. But there is a level of sophistication. We have this tendency to think because we're in 2023 and we're so much smarter than these people that we're more sophisticated than them. No. I mean, you go back, the engineering in Egypt at this part of history is insane. I mean, the pyramids, we still don't know how those dudes put those things together. I mean, it's crazy. Oh, we, we're so impressed by our own engineering spirit, but we can't figure out how they did the pyramids. And in, in philosophy, in Greece, you got Plato and Aristotle. Listen, I am going to tell you right now, 100%, I have no doubt that I'm right about this. You will not find a philosopher today in the West, no American philosopher, anybody comes close to touching the brilliance of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. These were brilliant minds. So stop with the recency arrogance of we're so much smarter than the people before. Nobody touches those guys when it comes to philosophy. It's why we study them and we read their works today and we try to figure out what in the world did the allegory of the cave mean. And I don't really like this thing. I can't comprehend it. Let's go throw a bowl into a basket or something like that. That's where we are today in a more entertainment culture. These people actually use their brains. It's crazy. And then astronomy. I mean, I know we've got better equipment, but what these guys figured out without the use of that equipment in Babylon and Persia 
brilliant minds, and we know that these guys that come to worship Jesus, they run in those circles. Now stop and think about that for a second. Today, what is the assumption about a scientific, sophisticated mind? The people who are at the lead of all of these careers, engineering, science, and, and astronomy, and philosophy, those are the people that don't have time to worship God. They're too smart for God. And yet, look at these guys running in this circle. Part of their wisdom was bowing and submitting before the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Third, we know that they have wealth and prominence. Okay, I thought he was charging the stage for a second. It's okay, I had time to get away. Wealth and what? You, you might have to. We'll just, all right, anyway, wealth and prominence. We know that these are wealthy guys. They traveled a great distance. Imagine right now planning a road trip that's going to last for over a year. All the money that would go into something like that. Think of all the people. I know we have this vision of a couple camels that are carrying the gifts and three guys that are walking this great distance. That's not the way they traveled back then. These people are going to have an entourage. There's going to be servants and there's going to be drivers and animals and then all of the food supplies that they're going to take with them. We're talking mucho money involved. And not only do they have to get there, but they got to have enough to get all the way back or at least buy what they're going to have for the way back. So these people are very wealthy. Also, look at the gifts that they give. The gifts are extravagant. They're not giving Jesus boggle, for crying out loud. These are extravagant gifts. Is boggle even a game anymore? Nobody even reacted to boggle. I, that was a dynamite line. I had written that. That was my go-to. Anyway, these gifts that they are giving, extravagant gifts. And Herod. Herod welcomes these guys. We saw a little bit about Herod last week. He's not going to invite peons into his presence. He's dignified. He's important. The only people that are going to get an audience with Herod are those who are wearing crowns and regal ornate robes. Those people that will do something for his reputation. In fact, remember, he calls the Sanhedrin in to meet these guys, these kings. They have wealth and they have prominence. We know that of them. And yet, that. They are surprisingly humble. I mean, it is really shocking when you consider all of this. They are incredibly powerful. They are incredibly smart and sophisticated. And yet they're out there asking questions. They're seeking wisdom from other people. They take advice. Think of the people that you know that are very impressed with their own intellect. And they have managed to secure a great deal of wealth because of how brilliant they are. They have the answers. They don't need answers from you, but that's not these guys. They trusted foreign prophets to where they were going to go. They're listening to guidance from Jewish priests and Jewish rabbis. That's pretty impressive stuff. If there is one trait of the wise men that impresses me and I think should impress you the most, that's it right there. They have wealth and comfort. They have everything they want at their fingertips and yet they humbly follow a star for over a year. And they humbly seek direction from other people that were lesser than them. They humbly, this one kills me, these kings who have everything, they get to this house where Jesus is and they encounter a young peasant girl with this baby and they bow down in front of the baby. Think of the sophisticated people today. They won't bow down before anything except maybe their own intellect. That's it. And they humbly bring these elaborate gifts. All of these people who are so important will bow down and worship the creator and focus on the symbolism of those gifts. 
Don't overlook those gifts, gold, frankincense, or incense, and myrrh. A lot of people don't see the reasoning or the logic behind it. They kind of make fun. They think this is, these are really kind of weird gifts to give a baby. If you've never seen this, this guy thinks it's weird. Can we roll the clip, please? But think about that song, Do You Hear What I Hear? It's Psycho. Who wrote that? Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy. I think the shepherd boy's been in the field a little too long, don't you? <laughs> Talking to the sheep. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, we got to tell the mighty king. <laughs> it's worse, they go to the mighty king. <laughs> a child, a child shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. How about a blanket? How about some soup? Child shivered in the cold. Throw some gold on him, he'll be fine. <laughs> he's got pneumonia, but he's loaded. That kid is gonna be some. I'm telling you right now, you will never be able, you'll never be able to sing that song again without thinking of that. Like every time I get to the bring him silver and gold, I can't sing it. I just can't do it. And that's going to be you. But there are people that don't understand the significance of the gift. And here's the thing. I wonder if the wise men understood the significance of the gifts that they were bringing. I, maybe they did, but I don't think they probably did. The master chess player that's arranging all of this stuff, he's at work here and he knows the significance of these gifts. Gold is a gift that you would give a king. Okay, that's what you would give to Herod. You'd be expected to give to Herod. And frankincense, incense is what was, was burnt right outside the curtain before you go into the Holy of Holies, before you enter into the presence of God. That's incense that's burned right there. And then myrrh. Myrrh is a spice that's used for various stuff, but one of the most prominent uses would be to prepare a dead body or to preserve a body in a tomb. All right, now come on. Look at those things right there. You don't see significance in those gifts. You don't see symbolism in those gifts. I don't know if they had any idea, but we know a gift for a king, I don't know, maybe like the king of kings, a, a, a gift that you would have for a high priest, like maybe a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as scripture tells us. I, I don't know, preserving a body like a body that's going to be laid in a tomb and Mary's going to bring spices and then find that the tomb is empty. This is what kills me when people say, ah, the Bible was written by a bunch of men that just came up with all of this stuff. No doofus man or group of men could come up with all of these things that intricately intertwine and you sit there and say, holy cow, it is birthplace when the, they're worshiping him. These guys that don't have any idea who this is going to be are bringing gifts that then will make total sense by the end of his life. And the best part is when they say, you're going to follow a book that was written by sheep herders from 3,000 years ago. Right, yes, sheep herders that somehow figured all of that stuff out. Ah, come on, get out of here. I'm not putting up with it today. I don't have time for it. This is amazing, but that's about it. That's about all we know about the wise men, what I've told you right there, those four things. That's really all that Scripture tells us. So can I tell you the weirdest part of this account to me? And it really should be the weirdest part of this account to you. The weirdest part is that Matthew includes it. I mean, if Luke wants to include it, because remember what Luke's doing, he's researching all of the stuff that happened and he's writing it down to give an orderly history. That's not Matthew. Why is Matthew writing this down? That doesn't make any sense. And I know the Holy Spirit is at work, but there has to be a reason that Matthew is the one that carries this message of the men from the east. Why would Matthew do it? Well, first of all, do you know who Matthew is? Matthew is a tax collector 
he is a Jew, okay? He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's an eyewitness to everything that's going to happen, yes. But Matthew is a Jew. He was looked at as a traitor because he was a Jewish guy who worked for the Romans to collect taxes. Matthew is, I'm stressing this, a Jew. And who is Matthew writing his book to? Now, we understand that God was preparing it for us at Jerome Christian Church in 2023. But Matthew, when he is writing this, he is writing his text primarily and almost exclusively for a Jewish audience. Matthew is desperate to convince his fellow Jews this Jesus is your long-awaited Messiah. That's why if you read the book of Matthew, when I was in college, we had to do this. Count up all of the Old Testament references in the book of Matthew. I thought I could knock that out uh, 20 minutes before I headed to the Wildcat to get my sack lunch. You know how many Old Testament prophecies are included in the book of Matthew? It's absurd. I mean, far more than any of the other Gospels. You can start combining other Gospels and they don't equal the amount of Old Testament prophecies that Matthew talks about. Why would he do that? Why would he do it? Because he's talking to people that that Old Testament were their scriptures that they've been studying about a coming Messiah, and Matthew's saying, hello, all this stuff that has been said about a coming Messiah, you see how it is fulfilled in Jesus. Over and over, Matthew says, thus was fulfilled what was said through the prophet. And as the prophet said, over and over and over, because he's writing to Jews. So that's my question. A Jewish audience is not going to be impressed. They're not going to be persuaded. They're not going to be moved by pagans from the east. They don't care about pagans from the east. So why in the world would Matthew be the one that God decides should carry this message, that should be included? Why is it Matthew? Okay, there are some smart people that have come up with some answers, and I want to share them, but then I want to share one too, okay? By the way, I don't like the way I set that up, that smart people have some answers, and then I've got one too. Um, I didn't mean it to come across that way, but I, I want to be clear that these others are ones that I've read and I've seen, and they make a lot of sense, and I think you need to know them. This other one maybe isn't going to hit with you. It does with me, but I don't know. Can't be sure. But we'll close with it, so it'll be really awkward if it doesn't do anything for you. Number one, the number one reason that they give as to why Matthew is carrying this message is because it is signifying a new era. Do you remember when we talked uh, in the You Asked for It series about Israel? And we said that Israel was this tree that God was pruning and keeping safe and everything. The trunk was being built. And then when it got to the branches in the time of Jesus coming, there was a lot of Jews that were part of this tree that rejected him. And those are the branches that fell off. And what did God do? He grafted into the tree all of these Gentiles, right? That's at the time of the coming of Christ. And that's what's happening right here. These are Gentiles that are coming from long distances to worship. This baby that is being born in the manger is getting ready to usher in an era that is far more Gentile-focused than anything the Jews have been used to. You read the Old Testament, God's focus is entirely on the nation of Israel. He's constructing and building and watering and cultivating, and I've run out of synonyms, that tree. That's what he's doing in the entire Old Testament. And now, Jesus is going to be far more Gentile-focused. Yes, Jesus says at one point that he came only for the lost sheep of Israel. But what do we know about his ministry? Just start, I just picked out four of these things. Start flipping through. In Luke 8, Jesus heals a demon-possessed maniac in a cemetery. He's a Gentile. Okay? And then if you go a chapter before that, Jesus raises the son of a widow woman in a neighboring town. They're Gentiles. And in Luke 10, Jesus praises and uses a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan, as the hero of the story. 
Not something you would expect if you were a Jew and believed that this was God who was working. And then you get to Acts 10, and the Holy Spirit uses Peter to, con to convert a Roman centurion in Caesarea. What do they all have in common? They are all Gentiles, totally different than what you've seen in the Old Testament. So that's the number one reason, that it's ushering in a new era. Secondly, it identifies what I would call, and what a lot of people call, if you read the book of Matthew, it's all about come and see. Come and see for yourself. You don't believe this is how God would enter the world. You don't believe that this is how God would impact his people. You don't believe that God is writing himself into his own creation and his own story. Just come and see for yourself. Now, we know at the end of Matthew, when Jesus is resurrected and he's going up into heaven, he changes our faith from come and see to go and tell. You have seen, now go tell everybody what you have seen. But throughout the entire thing, his ministry, the witness and the testimony of the disciples, over and over, it is, come and see this thing that God has done. Come and see this guy who is carrying the message of the Father. And it all starts with these wise men who come from afar to see this thing that God has done that has been heralded by the star. They see the star, and it draws them in from the east for a long period of time. I need to give you a word about the star. We're going to take a quick sidebar here, so uh, if you're fading, wake up. Um, it's been a couple years ago, but somebody, and I don't remember who, and in no way, you need to know I was fascinated by it because I'm drawn to this kind of stuff. But I also think this is really important to say, so I'm going to say it. I just don't, I don't want to come across like I was offended by whoever it was that gave this to me. I really liked it. Okay, they gave me this paper about how the star or what the star actually was. That it was this astronomical phenomenon that took place. And it only happens every 5,000 years. And it just happened to take place at the very moment Jesus was coming to earth. That's a fascinating thing. But there's all kinds of theories. Uh, what was this star that was in the sky? Listen, I don't know. I, I, I can't say that any other way. I don't know what was going on there. I don't know if it led them, like you remember when Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and there's a cloud by day and then it turns into a pillar of fire by night to lead them. Is that what the star was? I don't know. I don't know if it was or not. And I hear all of these scientific explanations. Oh, that was a supernova is what it was. It was a comet that was flashing through the sky. It's a planetary explosion that was only there for a short period of time and it led them. I don't have a clue. And this is really maybe going to come across. I don't care. I'm sorry, but I don't care. Do I find it fascinating? Yeah, a little bit. But I don't care what it was because it's marginal. It's a distraction. That's the thing. Don't be mad at me. But all of those discussions, they're totally distracting from what the main purpose is, from what the point of all of this is. And this happens all the time to us as believers. It's why I wanted to take a minute to say this. And I'm speaking because this is the kind of stuff that I'm into. Let me give you other examples of these distractions. We say things like, well, how did all of the animals get onto the ark? They ever stop to think about that? Was it all one big landmass and then all the animals? And how far did they come from? Did God start the journey years before so they made it? I mean, he was building the ark for 100 years. We worry about that. Where did Elijah's ravens get the food that they fed him? And do you know the body mass of a raven? They couldn't have carried that much food. How in the world are they going to carry enough to sustain Elijah? That must have been like a flock. It might have been Alfred Hitchcock, flock of ravens that are coming to Elijah. And where did the quail in the desert come from? God provided manna and water and quail. Uh, are quail even native to this part of the world? Where did the quail come from? And how did the sun stop in the book of Joshua without calamity? I mean, if the earth stops rotating so it looks like the sun's not moving... 
I mean, that's going to end everything. Gravity, we're going to all shoot off the planet and, and it's going to implode and all kinds of bad stuff. How does that happen? And then, what winds were blowing 3,000 years ago near the Red Sea that made the Red Sea part for the children of Israel? This is the kind of stuff that we talk about and we think about and we get pulled into. This is an article that appeared on ABC News. Scientists explain Red Sea parting and other miracles. You can't read that, so I'll read it to you. Was the mythical parting of the Red Sea triggered by Moses' outstretched hand or an unusual chain of perfectly natural causes or both? And does it matter? <laughs> anyway, goes on and says, Russian researchers took a stab at explaining one of the Bible's most famous miracles. Their version of events describes how a strong, persistent wind and an underlying reef may have made the feat possible. Okay, I don't need you to tell me how it may have been possible. Here's why it happened. Because God wanted it to happen. And God is at work. And how he chooses to do that, that's fascinating. And I'll ask him one day, I'll ask for the replay. Put it up on the big screen. I want to know. But right now, that is an utter distraction from what we're really supposed to be paying attention to. This, this desire that we have as Christians to make our faith somehow reasonable to the outside world. We have to find a scientific... What are we doing, man? What you're trying to do is find a natural explanation for the actions of a supernatural God. That isn't going to work. When God decides to act, he is not bound by your little peon natural laws. Not mine, your little peon natural laws. He's not bound by them. He can do whatever he wants to do. If he wants the earth to stop and everybody to still be suctioned to the earth and not float off into space, he can do that. You know why? Because he's the one that spoke it into existence in the first place. So I'm not going to get overly worked up, and you shouldn't either, about trying to scientifically explain how non-scientific miracles actually took place. What you need to decide is, do you believe in a supernatural creator? And if you do, miracles are a thing of wonder. Miracles are things that are supposed to give us chills down our spine, not sit here and say, well, I, I got to figure out how a raven can carry a big stake like that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And that's what we do all the time. I have a tendency towards this. I'm preaching it myself right now. I'm the kind of guy that's going to sit and write a 14-page essay on the winds that, were, that happened to blow through that part of Sinai. I'm the one that's going to do that, and I need to not do that because here's the danger. And this is what I'm stressing to you. People that do that, that focus on the marginal, and that becomes their entire faith experience, proving and justifying their faith to a skeptical world, we oftentimes don't have the capacity for joy, joy in the deep central truths of Christianity. We miss it completely, don't we? We're focusing on the manna delivery system, and that's where we're spending all of our time. I'm trying to argue how a guy can spend three days in the belly of a fish so that people that are already scoffing at the Bible will somehow believe, well, I guess it is possible. But, and I do that rather than doing what? Rather than dwelling on the holiness of God and the power of Christ and the horror that is sin and as a consequence the blessing that is grace and the sanctification that comes from the Spirit. And I'm going to ask you, Christians, who is it that wants you to forget this stuff? Who is it that is desperate to distract you from the holiness of God? And, and the power of Christ. Yes, you're saying it. Stop saying it because it sounds like a chant and it's freaking me out. <laughs> People are going to hear that on the recording. Satan, Satan, no, <laughs> stop it. But anyway, yes, that's who it is. And I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be distracted from these things that move me and my faith. Listen, what is the point of this star that's leading the, the, the kings from the east? 
What are we supposed to take from Scripture? The point here is that the star, or whatever it is, is not a natural occurrence. This isn't something that naturally happens, that we can explain away and say, oh, well, it just so happened that it appeared at that point in time. No, no, no. What is happening here is that the God of the universe is at work. And that's what should send chills down your spine, because God, after 400 years of silence, is now moving amongst his people to do something miraculous. Your salvation is being announced by the arrival of that star. That sends chills down my spine. God is at work, and he is at work to bring pagans to their savior. That's what's occurring. And woo, that's getting me excited right there. That is what we should be focusing on. He's letting Israel know, yes, I love you. I will always love you, but my passion is now for the nations. And every man will know, and every tongue one day will confess that my son is Lord and Lord of all. Thirdly, thirdly, the reason Matthew carries this is because it offers a lesson in contrast. I love these contrasts. These are really cool to me. First of all, the contrast of the kings. You have Herod. I don't know if you know too much about Herod. I've got some extra information that I would like to share with you about some of his diseases. I don't, uh, I will just say, I want you to notice how many more people are here this week. So obviously you people have some sick problems. But anyway, Herod the Great, he is a, he's this powerful murderer and he rules through fear and then he disappears. You guys didn't know, or maybe one or two of you, knew some of that stuff that I shared last week. But it is appalling to you, and you were shocked and chagrined because you had never heard anything like that. And why? Because nobody cares about Herod. Nobody thinks about Herod. He was here at the time, and he's gone, and nobody knows. Contrast that with the other king that's mentioned in this account, that they are coming to worship. A king who rules through love, who was born in lowliness and humility, and now reigns in heaven and is coming again. You all know his name, right? It's a contrast in kings. You also see a contrast of the people right here in Matthew. You've got the Jewish people, God's people, who have become foolish and stiff-necked. They are careless and apathetic. They have been waiting for thousands of years for their Messiah. And he's being born right under their noses. Right there in the city of David, he's being born. Eh, they're oblivious. They don't even have room for him in an inn. Ah, put him out in the stable. That's how blind the Jewish people had become. And Matthew's pointing out, while there are those people who are blind, the Gentiles, these are foreigners who are eager for hope and salvation, and they are rejoicing and they are worshiping. There's the contrast of the people. There's also the wise. What is wisdom? I ask this question all the time. In our era, what we regard as wise, those words of Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. Became fools. The foolish, wise people are all around us. They were there then, too. Herod called together all of his wise men. You saw that in the passage. The chief priests, the Sanhedrin, people that are in the right place at the right time, they know Scripture, and yet they reject its truth. That's why they don't see and they don't worship this baby that's being born. Meanwhile, you have the Magi, these wise people from the wrong country who are far away from God, but who recognize and bow to the authority of the Word. The Word become flesh. And then you have the contrast of circumstances. Look at the wealthy, the powerful, these kings with expensive gifts, gifts and regal robes and these gold crowns with jewels on them and they open the door of this modest little home and they find a holy family in poverty using swaddling clothes. Who bows before whom? 
That's what I'm saying, the contrast that Matthew is putting out there. And I'll tell you, there's something else here too. I don't know if this, if this means anything to you, but the contrast between the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. Here at the beginning of his earthly life, what do you see? You see these wise men who come to a house and they find a helpless baby laying there. And you know that baby is probably crying. Maybe he needs to be changed. I don't know, but he's a baby. And there's no teaching and there's no miracle and there's no outward sign of his deity in any way, but they knew and they worshiped him. Now I want you to fast forward to the end of Jesus' earthly life and what occurs. You don't have wise men around, but you have a thief on a cross who turns and he sees a dying man next to him. And that dying man is not teaching anything and he's not performing any miracle. There's no outward sign of his deity because a deity would not let himself be treated like this by his creation. And yet, he worships him. When you encounter Christ for who and what he is, that is the response of our souls, is to worship him in spirit and in truth. And fourthly, this is the one I don't know. I don't know if this will mean anything to you. I hope it does. But I read this passage, and I notice something about the Magi. After they come and they encounter Jesus, after they worship Jesus, what happens? It's right there in verse 12. After they worship the infant Jesus and they're going to return home, after encountering him, what occurs? What occurs is that they leave and they go a different direction than the one that they came. I don't know. Is that too fluffy? Is that too semantics? I, I don't know. But they encounter Jesus and they don't walk the way that they had come. They're walking a new way. God has told them to go in a different way. Is that not the same for us? When we encounter the Christ child, when we encounter the King of Kings, that the way we used to be, the roads that we used to walk, the drinking and the lies and the cheating and the abuse and all of that stuff and all of the pursuit of intellect and power and prestige, it loses its luster. We don't want to follow that way anymore. He has called us to go home another way. That's what I see. That's what I see written in this passage. Um, I have a book by Richard Wilkie. He wrote this. It's a devotional book. He wrote this, and I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say. Recently, he writes, I received a phone call from a brilliant young man with advanced university degrees. Well, young man is probably relative, Wilkie writes. He's in his late 40s, but that's young by my standards. This man is sophisticated, and he's smart. He's incredibly articulate. He has boundless energy. When you see him or encounter him, he is the man who has it all together, who has life by its throat. On the phone, he told me he had just been released after serving a multi-year prison sentence for taking and selling illegal drugs. He had stolen them, used them, profited from them. Though he had all the gifts, all the reasons to be satisfied, he wasn't, and it cost him. In prison, for a lack of a better thing to do, he began to pray. And then he joined something called the Disciple Bible Study. And after weeks of attending, he asked the prison guards if he would be permitted to be baptized. Receiving permission just days after Christmas that year, the young man said he had knelt before the Christ child, feeling like the kings of Scripture. Those who had great wealth, great talent, great ability, but who wisely recognized that none of it compared to the matchless experience of knowing Christ as Lord. Upon his release from prison, he had begun his newest enterprise. It's called Second Blessing. It's a store of used clothing and used furniture and children's toys and bedding for people who are ex-cons, people who are impoverished, people who are in need. Unsurprisingly, Wilkie writes, given all of this man's obvious talents, his charisma, his intelligence, 
His business is booming. But he intentionally limits the amount of money that he takes home as a salary. And he uses all of his excess profit to give bonuses to his workers and to hold large-scale charity suppers for the community. Wilkie writes, he has met Jesus, he has worshipped him, and he has been changed. I would say that that encounter in prison was a lot like the encounter that the wise men had. And he left, and he's walking home a different way. I'd like to think that's the story for all of us. But statistics are what they are. And a lot of us are pursuing the path that we've always pursued. Maybe in name we're a Christian. Maybe we tell people, ah, we go to church. But as far as having an encounter with Christ that has changed us, and we're walking in an opposite direction where the things of this world don't attract us, the words that this world uses don't hold any sway over us, that the pursuit of power and prestige and profit and money, none of it attracts us because we know instead the incredible experience of knowing Christ as Lord. If you haven't chosen to walk that other way, maybe today's the day. Father God, I thank you for this message that you have laid on my heart, and I pray that it has impacted who it needed to impact. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the witness of these wise men from the East. And God, I pray for every individual in this room that we would have the wisdom that they had to leave everything behind, be willing to risk it all and travel great distances simply for the chance to be in the presence of your mighty, conquering, loving, forgiving, merciful, grace-filled Son. Father, there is no earthly experience that compares. And I pray that each of us this season will experience it in a new and a powerful way. We pray this in the name of that Son, our risen and conquering Savior, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. If you want to commit your, Christ, your, your life to Christ, now's your chance. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?